Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast. Andrew Silly is my name. This is a podcast that's dedicated to the sport, the hobby of radio control flight. That's right, planes, helis, and drones is what we cover here at Flat Out RC. Now, episode five are up to, and this is a corker of an edition. Yeah, absolute great edition. Uh, later on, we'll be hearing from my special guest, Tyson Dodd. Uh, Tyson Dodd's a, a well-known aero modeler in Australia. Also happens to be the secretary of the MAAA down here in Australia as well. So a really, really insightful chat. Great guy. And uh, he really gives us a bit of an understanding as to what he's up to, the MAAA, and uh, and a lot more. So stay tuned for that that great interview coming up with Tyson Dodd. But before we get into it, we're still stuck in lockdown, but we're on the cusp of getting out of it. I think some states are opening up. I know Queensland has opened up down here in Victoria, where I where I am in Melbourne. We're still shut down for uh, another week at least, we think. So we'll wait and see what happens towards the end of this week, whether we'll get the all clear. And maybe by the time this has gone to air, we, we do know. So fingers crossed that we'll be back flying shortly. Uh, we always got to abide by the government regulations, but I'll tell you what, we're all we're all itching to get out back to the fields, aren't we? Even though the weather down here in Melbourne at the moment, and I'm recording this on it's a Sunday evening actually. I'm recording this at the moment, and it's freezing. Uh, it's been a really cold weekend, so uh, sitting out there and flying probably isn't going to be the greatest thing at this time of year. But anything is better than sitting around at home. But I must say, I said to my wife this morning that I've really enjoyed this lockdown period because I've I've got so much done with my models. Uh, you know, I've got two two aeroplanes finished, uh, sorry, three two hundred cc's, a, a jet uh, that's on the cusp of being ready to maiden. Uh, so it's been quite a busy time. And plus, recording this podcast, and I must say, I'm really enjoying this podcast. I'm really enjoying um, producing it. I'm really enjoying the interviews. So I hope you are, and if you are, don't forget to subscribe. I've recorded a few few uh, episodes or interviews up, uh, up my sleeve at the moment, and uh, they are really good. Uh, the, the two that I've got lined up, uh, one of them especially is a, a big name in the hobby. You know, we're going to the top, and the good thing about this podcast is uh, it can be an international thing because I, I can talk to people overseas uh, Facebook Messenger and making calls through Facebook Messenger is is the the platform of choice at the moment because uh, most people have got it and uh, so stay tuned for some international guests and one of them is a really big name in the hobby probably one of the biggest so get on board and subscribe Apple Podcasts Spotify or SoundCloud three options there uh, it's free it doesn't cost you anything uh, to listen to this podcast so jump on board and don't forget to subscribe. Okay, product news. Any news from the hobby? Well, we do have some product news. I, you know, I've been struggling for the past few weeks to try to find some new product launches, but uh, there's a few sneak peeks. Uh, one we saw on Facebook. I saw some photos of DLE. Now, DLE, the uh, the gas motor manufacturer, working on a whole bunch of different products, and uh, they seem to be really trying to work outside the 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 the, uh, the square at the moment. They are. They came out with their 130cc motor, first ones to do that. So, you know, originally when I first started in the hobby, 100cc was big and then DLE 111, then we went to to, to the 120cc size motors and now DLE have gone to the 130. But what was interesting to see 
is a new, I think it was a new 120 size motor, 120cc, but it's a four banger. It's a four pot sort of uh, uh, cylinder configuration rather than the two. Now, I don't know why they're doing it, but it'd be interesting. Maybe it'd be more compact. It'd be great for scale applications. Maybe the sound would be better having uh, four cylinders rather than two. So I saw the photos and, and hopefully we'll get more information at some point in time. So that's one thing that caught my eye. But I suppose the biggest release in the past week comes from well-known drone manufacturer DJI. Now, DJI are the dominant player. It's almost like DJI is at the top and everybody else is behind when it comes to consumer-based uh, aerial platforms. That's the way I put it. You know, it's not it's not a racing drone, but uh, manufacturer, but they they do specialize in that aerial photography and videography sort of platform for for the the average consumer. Uh, and I've always liked their stuff. I've always followed followed them for many years. I've owned a couple of their drones. I currently own a Mavic Air. But this the past week, they've released their new iteration of the Mavic Air, the Mavic Air 2. And we haven't seen... We saw the, the, the Mavic Mini, I think, came out. I think it was called the Mavic Mini, come out, which is a smaller sort of platform. Problem with that is it's just small, and small sometimes means a bit unstable. But anyway, I haven't seen one in real life. Um, I think that... I don't think many people went out and bought it, but the Mavic Air 2 has come out, and I tell you what, well done, DJI. The the biggest challenge in the life cycle of drones now is they've got to a pretty good level, and trying to improve them and um, give people reasons to to upgrade it's getting harder and harder. But in this instance, I think DJI are going to make the uh, the the Mavic Air one uh, owners think should. Is it time to upgrade? So let's just go through some of the features. So the whole platform's sort of been rethought out. The whole chassis has been changed. So it's a bit more similar to the Mavic Pro, it's, its older brother, uh, than the existing Mavic Air 2. It's slightly bigger uh, and heavier. It's 570 grams versus the previous one that was 430 grams. Its dimensions when folded out are a little bigger. So we've got 183 by 253 by 77 versus 168 by 184 by 64. So uh, you don't have to remember all those numbers, but it's substantially sort of bigger when folded out. But when it's folded in, so the, when the arms, the arms fold out, but when they fold back in, it is still a similar size to the original Mavic Air. It's still a, a small, compact drone. And that's the thing that people loved about the Mavic Air. And what I love about mine is uh, for my, my regular job in the marketing world, uh, carrying the Mavic Air with me uh, to a video shoot is is easy. It, it's literally the size of a, a normal camera lens, so it fits in a bag nice and easily. And the Mavic Air 2 continues down that path. Now, what are some of the other features? New controller, and I think this is great. A major improvement. One of my bugbears of some of the uh, older DJI transmitters, they're those little tiny fold-up ones. Now, they don't take up a lot of space, but putting your phone on it, and off it is just a pain. Uh, these funny little arms that come out, and you've got to try to jam your phone in and plug the cable in to connect it up and all this kind of stuff. It was a bit of a pain, and that's there's a major improvement now. The, the, the transmitter is slightly bigger. Uh, the you, you put your phone on top, and now it's like a um, like a clamp, like a telescopic clamp. So it's it's even easier to put put it on than ever. Uh, and the other thing that the transmitter supports is OcuSync 2.0. Now, what that basically means is now you can fly further. 
uh, you can have vision for a lot longer. We're talking about 10 kilometer range versus four kilometers. Now, let me, let's just understand something. First of all, it's illegal to be flying these drones out of sort of line of sight. You shouldn't be flying even one kilometer away. And the my honest opinion of it is this, is that the further you get away from yourself, and this is my own experience, the further you fly away from yourself, yourself the more uneasy you feel. Uh, knowing that the, 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 this tiny little drone is more than a kilometer away and you can't see it, it really starts to get a little scary. So great that you can go to 10 kilometers, but four kilometers is generally about three kilometers more than any of us are ever going to fly. So don't be alarmed by the numbers. I just think that flying 10 kilometers away is stupid. And you probably, by the time you get out to 10 kilometers, your battery might not even get you home. So you've got to be very, very careful with that. Uh, and no doubt somebody will go onto YouTube and they'll do a range test and we'll see how far you can actually go. But uh, the technology's there. I, I don't dispute the technology. I just think that, uh, one, you shouldn't be flying that far away from yourself to meet your, the government regulations. And secondly, why would you? Why would you want to go and fly 10 kilometers away from where you are? I just don't understand. Anyway, what I found with flying these drones is the best thing to capture is stuff that's sort of happening near you and following, say, a vehicle or a person or something like that can uh, be be look great. Um, I suppose we've become accustomed to drone footage and immune to it. That uh, we went through the cycle of great uh, cinematic shots to now be bored of that, and we need we need a, a bit more. But and I, I do like the way that drone videography is going. Is that it's not the the the, the whole part of the story. It's it comes in and out of the story, which I think is uh, adds a great effect. Okay, so phone goes at the top, telescopic brace, we've got better range. Now, another great thing is the flight time. We've now gone up from 21 minutes to 34 minutes of flight time. That is massive, 34. We're talking over half an hour now. Okay, it does depend on the conditions. If it's blowing a gale, you're not going to get your full 30 minutes, no doubt. And these little motors are going helpful leather to keep you balanced. But 34-minute flight time is phenomenal. That, that gives you more than enough time to to shoot what you want. What, what, my personal experience with my drone is that after after 15 minutes, I'm starting to run out of things to shoot because I've captured everything in my in my vicinity that I want to, and so might as well just land. I rarely do a full battery. I get what I need, and then uh, I get out. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'm playing around with it uh, up at my holiday house and might have some visitors, and I give them a go of the drone so they can see what it's like and use the full battery, but... Generally, if I'm filming something, I don't need 34 minutes or even 21 minutes is, is more than enough. But what it does mean is that you might not need two batteries. You might just need to get one battery, save yourself some money because you know you've got plenty of flight time. But it's there if you need it. Now, the all-important camera. Camera specs always improve. Uh, DJI actually has invested in another company called Hasselblad, which is another camera company. So I think they're grabbing some of their technology and integrating it into the DJI platforms. And what you can see in the DJI Mavic Air 2 is a new camera. Uh, it's a it's a one and a half inch, I think, uh, CMOS sensor. So it's not the one inch, sorry, it's 1.2. It's smaller. Basically, I'm reading off the wrong specs. I've written notes and of course I've stuffed it up. But basically the, the camera is, uh, I think a half inch, half inch, um, that's what it is. It's a half inch, I can't read my own notes. Half inch uh, CMOS sensor versus the one inch in the Mavic Pro, the model up. And what that means basically is the bigger the sensor, the better the shot. So it's an improvement on the previous version, which I think, um, I can't remember exactly what the previous one was, but probably two thirds or something like that. But anyway, uh, 
the half inch CMOS sensor is is providing some greater capabilities. So what are those capabilities? 4K footage at 60 frames per second, which I think the previous model can only do uh, um, 30 frames at 4K. Uh, a higher um, data transfer rate, which means you're capturing more data uh, whilst you're, you're, you're filming at that 4K 60p. So it means a very big improvement on, on that 4K capability. Not that many of you are going to use it, but anyway, it's there. Uh, what else has got? A super slow-mo shooting 1080p. So full HD at 240 frames per second for really slow-mo effects. That's that's awesome. That's really, really good. That's, I think, an improvement on the previous edition as well. So all in all, just a better camera. You're going to get better photography. Uh, you basically get a similar functionality and options when it comes to shooting as the Mavic Air 2, which really they're struggling to think of any new things that we might possibly want to use. But for someone like myself that knows how to work camera gear, I really, I manage the camera manually from the ground. So I choose my ISO settings and uh, shutter speeds and things like that uh, to, to suit the situation that I'm in. And uh, what the, what this new camera means is just better quality. And better quality is always a better thing especially if we don't have to pay more for it. And we'll get to that. Uh, it still has all the sensors and things like that that uh, we've become accustomed to on these drones, a forward-facing, rear-facing, downward sensors to try to get you over or stop you from running into obstacles, which is uh, always good. DJI do a great job with their marketing. You know, It's a Chinese company out of Shenzhen, but they really are right up there with the apples. I think they, they took a leaf out of Apple's and uh, GoPro's book and how to do it. So they always have plenty of footage and their footage always seems great. Be mindful that a lot of the footage is edited. If you've w watched Flat Out RC videos, if I showed you the raw video versus what ends up happening, I do edit the colors and, and things like that to try to improve them. And, and no doubt a lot of these manufacturers do that as well. So all in all, would I buy the Mavic Air 2? I think that uh, the main things that I look for is uh, the camera, of course, is, is significant for me because primarily I'm using these drones to shoot photographs or video. And so an improved camera is is great. The the flight capacity is also great. Uh, you know, that one, one battery, don't have to worry about two. I love the new controller. I think that's a massive improvement. Uh, and really, I, I, that controller would make me use my drone more. I don't use it very often, but it would make me use it more because the the old transmitter just was a pain to set up. So well done, DJI. I, I, I always I feel sorry for DJI to think, where do they go to next? Because they set such a high standard early on. It, it was like going to be hard work to keep on improving, but... In this Mavic Air 2, it's really impressed me. I think they've kept the essence of the Mavic Air 2, which is a smaller package than the traditional Mavic Pro, and they've just made it even better. So if you are in the market for one, let me just tell you roughly what the price points are on them. And I think they've kept them the same as the previous model too. So you're not paying any extra for all this. So there's two two versions. There's the Mavic Air 2, just uh, where well, I think you just get the transmitter and a bat one battery and the, and the drone is uh, around $1,500 Australian. And then you get the fly more combo, which gives you some a few added uh, things, extra batteries and uh, you know spare props, I think, and a few other bits and bobs like that. And that's uh, around the nineteen hundred dollar uh, Aussie mark. So they're not a cheap, cheap unit, all in all. But you do get a lot of technology for that money. It's not you know you get the new camera, of course, 
and you're getting the flying platform and all the smarts that DJI have. And of course, the cool factor of owning a DJI drone. Now, DJI drones are made uh, are available all around the world. Uh, in uh, every hobby store, should be able to get 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 you a DJI drone. If they can't, there's plenty of others that can get there. So finding one is as simple as getting online and doing a search on it, and you'll find someone uh, someone that can sell you one in no time. So there you have it, the DJI Mavic Air Two. Well done, DJI. It's got me thinking as to whether I need an upgrade. If you want to send me one through for test, I'd love to see one. Thank you. Now to my favorite part of the podcast, and that's my special guest. And today's guest is none other than Tyson Dodd. Now, Tyson Dodd may be a familiar name to you. He is the secretary of the NAAA, that is the uh, our flying association down here in Australia. So he holds a pretty important position and undertakes a lot of uh, administrative tasks for the NAAA. It's basically his full-time job, but as you'll see through this interview, he does enjoy the hobby, flying. He's a massive turbine fan. He also has a little side business uh, selling model aircraft or turbine-related gear. So Tyson Dodd, a must-listen-to interview, and stay tuned. It gets better and better the more we go on. So... Big thanks to Tyson Dodd for joining me and over to our guest. Tyson Dodd, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Great to uh, great to be sitting here having a chat. Excellent. Now, uh, we, we've just been having a chat off uh, microphone. We're both working on jets, which is good to see. And I'm glad I've got you because you are a, a big figure in the jet scene here in Australia. But can you just summarize your involvement in the hobby? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, like a, a lot of us, extremely passionate about aeromodelling. And, uh, and from a young age, I think I started flying in about 1988. Uh, so a little eight-year-old, pimple-faced boy out of the field, driving the old fellas nuts, um, hogging all the airspace. Um, my old man obviously got, got me into, into flying model aircraft back then. He'd been doing it since he was a boy. And... Um, yeah, started with with your basic trainer, and that stage, ducted fans were were making their way onto the scene. I think my first little ducted fan was a a MiG fifteen, a Byron Originals kit MiG fifteen, and um, and played played with the MiG fifteen all over the country at some of the events for a while, and then um, my my father Kevin got into turbines, so we started playing around with the first production type JPX turbines in about 1990, and I guess from then I was really bitten, um, bitten by the bug, and wasn't too interested in anything else as a as a ten year old. And you know the usual usual scenario that we've all been through: you you build a model during the week, you fly it on a Saturday afternoon, and then get into it Saturday, probably damage it on a Saturday, rebuild it Saturday night, and head back out and fly it again on a Sunday. Um, so those were my my younger years, um, and then I guess. Up until I finished high school, um, got uh, interested in girls and cars, and then a couple of years later, definitely came back into aerial modelling in full force. And obviously, by that stage, I was self-funded um, after uh, establishing my career and, and dived head head first into turbines and into jets, and and basically hanging around out with uh, with all my mates again, who I'd sort of grown up with flying. Um, they're all in the same boat. We're all self-funded, and, and we're doing a lot of flying of, of the, the entire spectrum: uh, gliders, 
Um, we played a bit around with a little bit of FPV long before drones and FPV were really really sexy, and and then obviously into turbines. Um, so yeah, I, I think like like all of us, Andrew, live, breathe era modelling, and that's probably where it took me into my my current career path after after being an environmental engineer for 20 years. So um, I'm, I'm well and truly entrenched in, in aero modelling as, as a career, as a, as a passion, um, and obviously as a stress relief as well, which is probably a little bit of an oxymoron, really. Yeah. I just want to wind, wind back a little bit. You mentioned yep. ducted fans and you'd flown them. <laughs> and uh, uh, literally last night I, I, um, I purchased a, a CO2 fire extinguisher from a turbine from a gentleman and he was telling me about how he used to fly ducted fan. And I've always been fascinated about ducted fan planes, reading about them in magazines when I was a kid. What were they like to fly? Uh, they were to, to fly. They were pretty much exactly the same as what our jets are now. Um, but we, we went through a lot of trials and tribulations to, to get those models to break, break ground. Um, the, the thrust to weight curve on ducted fans back then wasn't as, as um, impressive as turbines are these days. And you know, you're still dealing with methanol and castor oil and um, glow plugs and, and starter wands and you know, the screeching of a, of a 91 OS um, with, a, with a ducted fan on it at, at the, the top of the voice. It's, um, yeah, the, the Byron MiG-15, Andrew, actually had a, a cheetah hole in the bottom. So I used to spend my nights after a weekend cleaning out the caked up grass and, and castor oil that would spray through the inside of the model over a weekend because uh, it would suck all the grass through and mix it with castor. Oh, um, right. So it was, yeah. I, I think it, it paved the way certainly for a lot of the, you know, the establishment of, of jets these days and, and the quality of the airframes. But, you know, it was a lot of, lot of fun and, um, you know, everyone, everyone helped each other overcome those those complexities of the the performance of the models back then yeah but now we're, we're fortunate the i'm amazed at the turbine scene and, and how you know it's grown you know our hobby isn't growing rapidly anywhere really in the world but that turbine movement is really really moving ahead and that's why i bought a, a turbine jet is just to want to be part of some of the events that are happening uh and so what really draws you to turbine jets um at the moment, it's the, the simplicity. I find um, setting up a turbine and, and operating it properly um, fairly easy. Um, it's, you know, I, I look, at, look at helping my son with his, his glow engine or his petrol engine. And, and ironically, you know, a lot of guys think that's, that's really easy in a piece of cake. I'm probably a little bit the reverse. It, it daunts me a little bit. Nate. It's, got a, it's got a spinny thing on the front that can bite me on the hand and... Um, you know, still working out, you know, glows and ignitions and, and having to flick flick the, the engine over. At least with a turbine you you move the, the trim trim up and you move the throttle stick and the and the onboard computer, the ECU just takes over and, and does a full start and then gives you a turbine running and you go fly. Yeah, I um, do like that. Can you actually just for those that um don't know a lot about turbines, can you give me a high-level run-through of what that turbine setup looks like? You know, we're talking around the motor and stuff like that because a lot of people may not be aware of how sophisticated they actually are and how simple they actually are. Yep. 
yeah. So the, um, I guess, yeah, it's one of the one of the oldest forms of technology that we've been running. Really, a, a turbine just compresses air in in its guts and sends it into a combustion chamber, adds adds fuel um, with with already a fire burning, and it it's all compressed air. So you end up with a mini explosion, and it it comes out the turbine wheel, and that turbine wheel then drives the compressor wheel to compress the air, and it's just a rotating sort of circuit. But there's, there's really, all the engines, turbines these days are pretty much similar in, in terms of their quality and their design. Um, but it's it's more so the, the extras that go with them now, Andrew. Um, you know, with a, a turbine, you've got a, um, you've got a burner valve, so it starts up on a, on a low reduced fuel rate to get the fire going inside the engine and then it switches over to what we call a fuel valve which is a higher higher flow uh, fuel valve for normal run, running so they're connected to what we call an ecu electronic control unit um, or and you've got a hand data terminal so that hand data terminal that's connected to your ecu tells you you know the the egt the engine temperature the uh, fuel pump the, the volts that it's the fuel pumps running, obviously if it's having to run really high volts, there's a restriction or a blockage somewhere. Uh, it's telling you the RPM. So the turbines can, normal uh, a normal size turbine is sort of running uh, at idle at around 35, 38,000 RPM. And we'll get up to, to full throttle at about 120,000 RPM for the standard size motors. So they're, they're, you know, they've got a decent rotation on them. And um, and the ECU is balancing all that, so it's balancing the the exhaust gas temperature, uh, the RPM, the flow rate on the pump, all simultaneously. Um, so it's it's fairly <laughs> when when you've got a good setup and you've got a clean setup, and there's no restrictions in your system. The the ECU doesn't have to work very hard to give you a really good performing turbine. Yeah, I love um, the simplicity of the, the 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 turbine mounting, and like you said, no propellers. You don't have to flick anything; just your trim and your throttle, and off you go. And the thing starts. So it's amazing. and of course the smell of kerosene. Is just, <laughs> it's right up there with the smell of nitro. See, our gas burning planes. You know the the gases out. They don't smell that great, but I tell you what, nitro still smells good, and uh, the turbines are great. But my family doesn't like the smell of the kerosene. I have a few runs in the backyard, but anyway, uh, now. For anyone that is looking at getting into turbines, what are some of the things that they that you would suggest people um, be mindful of? Um, if you're getting into getting into turbines, you're buying secondhand equipment. Just just be wary of of its location and where it's run and the runtime. Um, you know, there has been some guys that have decided to pick up a cheap turbine and. And haven't haven't considered where it's been flown, how it's been flown, and, and doesn't really have any history. And because obviously, you know, it's like anything. If if they're not well maintained and they're not looked after, um, then you know, buyer beware could be be bitten by getting it, it serviced. Um, you know, compre- new compressor wheels are, are quite a few hundred dollars. Um, you know, some of the the ECUs and and fuel valves can be um, a few dollars. So. You know, it just pays to do your research. And, and what I tend to say to a new guy that wants to get into turbines and is starting to get bitten, bitten by the bug, it's just find find someone in, in your local area, either at your club um, or a club within your, you know, your, your, um, that part of your state who's already flying turbines. Go and hang out and and um, just 
just be a pit crew for the day and, and see how they, they fly and operate. Um, because let's face it, good advice is free these days. And there's a lot of guys, especially within the turbine scene, which are, are keen to pave the or pave the way to show show um, uh, a newbie, you know, some of the do's and the don'ts and, and the bewares uh, are getting into, into jets. Um, it's certainly not, you know, anything voodoo or black art, Andrew. It's um, um, it's fairly simple, but it's like anything. You know, a, a good guide is is uh, you know worth their weight in gold. Well, my tip, uh, and I, I totally agree with you. My tip is just getting in. Whereas I've just got into turbines, is once you actually get one in your hands and you start working through it, you know, if you are daunted, it actually falls into place really, really quickly as to. You know the ECU, how to start them, how to. I just programmed my throttle today. You know, um, calibrated my, my transmitter to the ECU, and you know, I read, I read it, the manual a few times, and then just gave it a go, and went, oh, that was really easy. That wasn't hard at all. So, um, you know, it, it's not as hard as what everybody thinks once you really get into it. So, definitely, Tyson and I recommend give jets a go. It just adds to and adds another dimension to your hobby. Now. Another thing that you're known for is some of the events that you've travelled to around the world. Um, tell me about some of those events that you've been visiting uh, over in the US. Yeah, I've certainly, um, I've certainly got an addiction for for heading over to the US and and hanging with some of the the friends that um, that I've made over there in the last uh, last six years. Um, I guess it. it it really all started. I had visited the US and, and, and flown at a couple of events prior to 2015, but it all really hit home for me in, in 2015, Andrew, when I went over to Florida Jets um, for a week. And, and I actually went over with Rick, uh, Rick Gell and, and um, Alayda, um, their, their Aussie, uh, Aussie retailers and aero modelers as well. And, and we went over to Florida Jets for a week and, and flew flew there under under Frank Tiano's sort of banner um, at Florida Jets and that was a massive eye opener. You know, the the event that that particular event you've got, you know, six six guys all flying simultaneously um, off a nine hundred foot sealed runway that's you know fifty foot wide. Um, and the the sequencing and the format and the preparedness of of uh, those that are running the flight line was just something something to be seen. You know, I've I've done a lot of events here in Australia, and, and a few guys are like, "Oh, someone else is flying. I'm going to wait." Um, you know, that particular event was an eye-opener. Seven seven or eight thousand flights were had during that week, and it it's just like clockwork. Um, you know, you can't sort of sit around and wait wait until the sky's clear because it's never really clear. Um, but I tell you what, the the type of aircraft um the level of builds and most importantly i found was um the welcoming of you know our counterparts from the us the american rc guys are just so awesome um they're so welcoming and i think i spend most of my time walking around to the other tents and, and sticking my head in and you know end up sitting down and, and being given some beef jerky and a cup of tea and um yeah, the, the, it was it was an eye opener then, and I followed that up in later that year by going back to California to uh, Best in the West. So that's Joey Castileo's event, and I typically have about 120 to 130 jet pilots, about 260 jets, um, and that's in Bakersfield, California. So about two hours 
north of um, LA, out in the um, the Sierra, sort of at the base of the hill, at the mountains. And um, yeah, it's it's again, it's another whole week of just jet flying, um, just nonstop, um, basically from from daylight till till after dark, um, till dusk, the the jets, and then they lay into a bit of night flying over night time. And and again, just the the learning curve of going to some of these jet events and seeing how they fly, um, seeing how they prepare the the gear and, and some of the new technologies that we just don't see here. Um, you know, I think it's just a, a, a part and parcel of not quite having a, a big enough market to see some of that that um, equipment come down under. Uh, so since then, Andrew, yeah, I think I've been over about uh, 10 or 11 times now to um, to US jet events. And you're, um, you're taking planes with you uh, to compete or to participate, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Um, each each time I, I, I go over with a couple of boxes. Um, a couple of times I've, I've acquired aircraft over there and have bought, bought some aircraft home um, as well. But, um, yeah, I, I've got a couple of boxes, which are pretty beaten up now after sort of 10 trips over. They've um, they've served me well, but just uh, they're aluminium boxes. I check them in as check luggage. It takes a bit of preparation um, to to do it that way. Uh, I've taken a couple of tours now. There's a few guys that I've taken over for that particular event in LA because it's logistically much easier to attend. It's it's one flight from Brisbane to LA, and and then we've got the vans and and we travel. We do, you know, I take the guys to a few museums, Edward Air Force Base, and a few behind-the-scenes tours from the contacts that I've made over the years. Um, but it's it's just good, clean fun for, for a whole week of flying. Um, and, you know, I think the last tour I took two years ago, um, you know, I lost half the crew. I found them down the other end of the end of the pits area, hoeing into um, Alaskan king crab with with a couple of my other mates, um, you know, Ali Machinchi and, and Joey, you know, it's pretty special to be out in the middle of nowhere and, um, and being welcome like that. I'll tell you what, what I love about going to some of these events overseas is the, uh, the emphasis on the food and, uh, yeah, it, it goes hand in hand with aero modeling as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Got to have a good feed. Yeah, very much so. Now, so you, you go to these events, you take the, the, um, the air, some aircraft with you. Why do you love turning up to events? Because I'm a big fan of going to events myself, but why do you love going to, to events, not only overseas, but also in Australia? Oh, it's, it's definitely to, you know, I have to admit over the last couple of years, I've probably backed off for the amount of flying I do at events, you know, before... Um, you know, before maybe 2018, I, I'd, I'd go down to say Wangaratta Jets and knock off 30 flights in a weekend. Um, these days, I, I have to say, you know, the number of flights that I do is probably significantly reduced because I am enjoying just catching up with the friends and friends that we, you know, we travel from wherever to be at that same location and, and catching up with them and and finding out what's new, what what they're working on, or or even you know problem solving. If if one of the guys is doing a new new jet or a new maiden and needs a bit of a hand, um, you know, and, and we all look forward to it. And it's really no different to the to the jet events in the, you know overseas. Um, or um, Top Gun. I competed in Top Gun in 2018 with um, with Peter Goldsmith in the team event. And the same thing. The learning curve at that event was was massive. You know. I only had four flights over a week, um, yeah. which doesn't sound sound a lot, but um, you know, in in between the the learning curve at these events is massive. Um, 
doesn't doesn't matter what you're looking at, whether it's scale, whether it's jets, whether it's you know warbirds. Um, these these sort of events are pretty paramount to my learning curve, and that's sort of where I am at the moment. I agree. I I was uh, talking to some people during the week actually about this exact point that if you really want to grow in the hobby, if you really do love the hobby and you want to improve your building skills, you want to improve your flying skills, a great way to do it is at an event. Not, not, not necessarily a, a competition, but not, you know, competition that also uh, plays a big part as well. You know, If you want to get great at flying aerobatics, flying uh, IMAC competition can really help. But yeah. learning from others and even just through observation, like learning how people set up their aeroplanes, what gear they're using, educate you as well and i find that uh those people that stay very insular to their club are missing out big time on seeing what else they can do in the hobby and, ex- and expanding their horizons in the hobby so that's why i've always been a big fan of events that i love the social aspect and i just mm. think it, it just gives you so much more you know and yeah. like you said we, i hardly like when i was running a magazine flat out rc magazine I'd turn up to events and wouldn't even take an aeroplane. I'd have a video camera or a camera and I'd be taking photos and, and all that kind of stuff. But I actually really enjoyed that as well and almost didn't want to fly because I was enjoying catching up with people and hearing their stories and taking some photographs and all that. So, But now without the magazine, I am going to fly Wang Jets. You're going to come to Wang Jets in October if, if we're able to after this coronavirus? Well, yeah, it just just depends on the timing. Um, my son, because Macklin, my son, he's just turned nine and he's, he's now gone solo and he's got a got his first jet for christmas um that granddad helped helped out with and we were we were all all keyed up to come down but obviously the um with the the coronavirus and the dates having to be changed um, i'm just sort of waiting to find out i've i haven't really told anyone yet obviously other than a wife because i had to get permission but um it looks like i got i uh, got an invite to top gun again this year and top gun's been actually postponed till november so um, I'm just trying to work out work out the dates and whether or not I can I can do do Top Gun because I'd be at best in the West anyway. So um, just depending on the dates, yeah. But if 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 I'm here, um, I've got to leave past to to drive down and, and hang out with the guys for for three. Or I think they're, they're going to do first afternoon again um, this year. So it'll be three and a half days. Look, it's going to be October, like late each October, I think. October. So yeah. You might be able to squeeze it in there in between all your gallivanting overseas. Yeah. Now, I, I want to touch on uh, a, a big part of what your life involves uh, with now, which is the MAAA. Um, for anybody who's listening that is overseas, the MAAA is our sort of AMA equivalent here in Australia, our, our governing body for aero modeling, our, our representatives. I see the MAAA as the, the central body that represents my interests. Uh, now, you've taken over from your father as a secretary of the MAAA, and it's basically your job now. You, it is a paid position. What does your role entail at the MAAA? So as, I guess as, as a secretary, I, I probably you know, essentially liken my, my role to being the executive officer. So uh, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, um, I'm... I'm doing re- uh, membership renewals. I'm doing negotiations with CASA for, for new flying sites or extensions to heights and approvals. Um, I'm obtaining exemptions from CASA 101 for our members' use. So, for example, FPV flying. Um, then let's flip the coin. Um, I, I could be could be chatting to the, the president of SIAM or FAI about world championships or 
for World Championship events. Um, and then five minutes later, talking to, you know, John Box from, um, you know, a, a remote um, Australian club, just about general operations of, of his club. And, um, and then, you know, each, each sort of week we're, we're working as a, as a, a group. So the uh, presidents and secretaries of each of the state associations, you know, I provide them with an update of, on membership or, or preempting any issues that might be uh, coming up in relation to a, a particular flying site or, or changed um, requirements for manned aircraft that might have an impact on our hobby. So essentially I'm, I'm, I'm full-time working to future-proof and maintain that, you know, MAAA members flying um, the flying habits and desires are, are maintained um, without them having to worry. Yeah, and it's a full-time job, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, well, it's probably probably two full-time jobs, but we try and squeeze it into ten hours a day. Yeah. Well, you know what I want to do? I, I want to take this opportunity because I've got you on, on the line is to to dispel some of the MAAA myths that I that I hear out at the fields and amongst uh, you know circles that I mix with and and so on. Now, we re- we refer to the MAAA as if it's a mythical person that resembles a dictator. Is the MAAA a person, or what does it, what does it look like the MAAA? Because I know it's not a person, but what does it actually? Who is the MAAA kind of thing? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and I, I hear that quite a lot, um, just with random phone calls and emails, etc. Um, so the MAAA, being the Model Aeronautical Association of Australia. Um, is basically an association which is guided by 10 individual members. So those 10 individual members are the 10 associations that we have in each state. Um, Now, a few guys will probably say, hang on, but we don't have 10 states or territories. Well, no, we don't. We've um, we've got um, uh, all of our normal states, but in New South Wales, we actually have three associations where the other states and territories just have the one association. So essentially... The MAAA has the executive, which is myself as secretary, and I'll just reiterate, I'm a, I'm a non-voting, so I'm an employee, so I hold no votes at all um, at, at MAAA council level. We have the president, uh, Neil Tank, we have the vice president, Bruce Hoffman, and we have Gary Pope, who's a treasurer. So we're the, we're the four executive which are charged with the day-to-day operations. So that's uh, implementing what the rest of the state presidents have said, this is how we want MAAA to operate. This is how we want MAAA to guide. It's up to the secretary and the executive to make the day-to-day operations happen. Okay, so, so can I clarify something? Yeah. I think it's a big point. So what you're telling me is that the MAAA itself really doesn't have a lot of power to make decisions. Those decisions are made at state level through the state associations and the MAAA is just... The, the, the body that sits above everybody to implement those wishes that come out of the states. Yeah, so the, the MAAA is, is the 10 presidents from each of the state associations. So the, those presidents are the ones that make the decisions on, on the direction that the MAAA is an association. So it's an association with, with those 10 state association interests at heart. But the MAAA president has got voting rights or doesn't have voting rights? Uh, has voting rights, but is only called to vote if there's a split decision. Okay, so Neil Tank is president. He uh, uh, a decision goes to a vote. 
uh, if it's uh, 6-4 or something like that, um, then Neil doesn't vote. But if it's 5-all, Neil then gets the casting vote exactly. to disseminate. Correct. You know what? That, that's exactly yeah. the same as every other sort of association operates like that with the president. So one of the myths out there is that Neil Tank can go and dictate what happens in the hobby. But what you can tell is, no, he can't really. <laughs> the, your no. state associations, which, mind you, you elect those presidents. If you don't like them, don't vote for them. So they're the ones that are sort of coming up with uh, ideas, voting on them, and they have the, the power. The MAAA, the, the Tyson Dodds, the Neil Tanks of the world, are almost like the administrative arm that uh, acts on what, what has been decided through the rest of those voting committee members. Now, so my next question is, does the MAAA run the country? And I can explain why we are in the midst. We are in the midst of this coronavirus, and there was somebody I won't mention any names that put a post out on Facebook, really having a go at the MAAA about you know lack of leadership with the coronavirus. Does the MAAA own ventilators to resuscitate anybody that might have coronavirus? And oh, are you advising the government on what they should be doing in relation to coronavirus? That is one area where I have absolutely no skills in. Is uh is um, whatever the word for it is going to be, viro virology or um, my, my wife would probably tell me I, I do have skills and I'm well, well educated because of the coffee cup that ends up sitting on my desk for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, but definitely no. When the, when the MAAA went out with a, a, a recent email to the members about the coronavirus, as far as I saw, it was just it was a good communication piece, and it was just reiterating what the government had said. Is that correct? It, it was exactly that, and we were we were in a, it was a bit of a difficult situation. Obviously, so many things were happening so very quickly, and um, what I sort of had to reiterate to a lot of members that called me called me directly, which is which is fine, was that yes. We're, we're a national body, but our direct members from each of the states were in a position where each state was actually different because at a, at a state government level, that's where the decisions on, on particular health restrictions lay. So no, no different to what we saw during the, the initial um, exposure of the pandemic that you know, Scott Morrison, the PM, was, was providing a guideline and a decision, but there was still... Uh, significant differences in what was happening on the ground in, say, Queensland compared to South Australia. So for, for us to turn around and make some sort of directive which said to, to all the clubs and, the, and, and all the members, you know, no flying at all, was essentially saying to a couple of states that didn't really have that, that, those restrictions in place at a state government level, it would be saying to them, well, we're going to go over and above what your state government is requiring at the moment and that we didn't see that as being appropriate at that point in time which is why the communications reflected exactly what was specific to each member within their state from their state government yeah now my next question sort of relates to that point so you put out sort of a guideline just to say you know look there are these government regulations you need to abide by them and you know we can't go flying because we wouldn't be abiding by the government regs but the club that we're members of in our own little suburb or state or whatever, uh, do you have any control over their uh, decisions that they make in relation to, say, let's talk about this coronavirus thing. Can you sit there and, and tell a club, we want you to shut down? 
No. 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 A, a club's an incorporated body, and, and, and that's the beauty of the system that we have, that, that that club being an incorporated body empowers their committee uh, to be able to make the right decision. And, and what we do at a national level and a state level is, is provide the best possible guidance. We provide the, the, the back-end um, documentation and procedures to, to allow those clubs as incorporated bodies to make, to make the right decision for, for their location. So these clubs are affiliating with the MAAA. The way that I see it is predominantly for insurance purposes, uh, that uh, that the only way that we as hobbyists can get insurance is if it's done through a central body because no insurance company is going to deal with individuals in this regard in relation to a hobby. So um, am I correct in saying that a lot of the regulations that the MAAA puts in place around flying, licensing, some of those regulations around safety, is that a lot of that tied to insurance policies besides good, good safe practices? Yeah, the the uh, MOPs or the manuals of procedures that we've we've drafted and documented over the the long history of, of the association has has been sort of um, architected by, I guess, unfortunately, um, experience. So, for example, um, uh, let's use uh, the night flying MOP that we have. So, as MAAA members, we we have an exemption to be able to fly um, at night. Now, obviously, that goes against the um, CASA 101, which has no no error modelling would be basically would occur during the night time. But we have a procedure in place and applied for an exemption. Now, with our insurance, we wouldn't actually be able to do that unless we had one an exemption and be a procedure. But we wouldn't have got the exemption if we didn't have the procedure. And likewise, without a procedure in place, we wouldn't be included in our insurance for night flying if there wasn't a particular procedure. So the majority of the, the guidelines of the MOP have all the manuals and procedures. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of members or, or people say, well, hang on a minute, you've got all these rules and regulations, et cetera, et cetera. But when you sit down and read the MOPs that we have, they are essentially exactly what CASA requires for us to operate, but they're a procedure. So they're documented processes um, and the background of the reasons why um, we operate that way. Now that does two things. It, it, it provides a duty of care to our clubs and our members. So it's, it's by providing those points and those, those processes that they've got a surety if they, they need to refer to, okay, well, this is how I do it. This is why I do it. And this is what the outcome is going to be. But the other um, side of the coin is that we're able to use those MOPs as justification when we apply for our, all of our insurance policies, and I'll use the plural there and I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, for all of our insurance policies when we do our renewal to demonstrate to our insurer, you know, we're not, not a bunch of cowboys, we have been doing this for quite some, some time, and here's proof of the documentation that we've architect, you know, our architects have done over the, over the years. To, to provide the direction on, on how members will operate. So I used plural just before, I, I said insurance policy. So we're, we're not just a one, one insurance policy type association. Um, you know, the, the, the better men that have come and gone before me have, have identified really to, to be doing what we're doing right. We need to address um, basically all the risk levels of our operations. Now, um, a lot of members will call and they say, oh, I want a copy of my 
on my insurance policy. And I said, okay, well, which one? Because we actually have six. We we operate on obviously under public liability. That's probably the biggest, the biggest one, the or most important one for our use, because that basically indemnifies a landowner or ourselves as error modelers if we cause an impact to someone external to our to our flying site. Or um, you know, for example, I'll I'll use a, a, an example a couple of years ago where we set fire to a to a paddock from a, an IC aeroplane. Now that public liability was in place and, and it was able to indemnify that landowner and that member from the damage that that fire caused. So the public liability is a really big one, but we've actually got got others in our, in our suite as well. So because we've got clubs that operate as incorporated associations, we have, we have several other covers. So we have products cover, we have um, cyber insurance, we have um, a policy which caters for um, our committees, so indemnity for, for our committees if they unfortunately make a wrong decision. We also have a policy which I think is pretty important and that's our member-to-member -member insurance policy. Now, that basically means that if I'm down, down the club flying with my son and um, uh, one, of, one of the older guys lose sight of his plane and it crashes in the pits and it hits my son and he needs medical assistance, that insurance policy assists me in out-of-pocket expenses to um, get medical attention for my son. Um, vice versa, if it's myself that's hit and I can't work for you know a month, it steps in to cover the income that I would lose from not being able to work. It, it basically protects my family to ensure that A, I can still pay my bills, I can put food on the table and I've got a roof over my head for my kids. So that's that was another policy that was brought in by the previous um, previous committee, uh, executive committee and, and council members uh, years gone by to, to provide that as additional cover for our members, which which I just think is amazing that um, that an association of our, our type and scale here in Australia has, has that suite of insurance coverage for our members. I'm so glad you just went through all that, that I didn't know that there were so many levels of insurance. And just sitting back here listening to you talk about it, I just felt really lucky that I am an MAAA member and that I didn't know that you had my back covered. I didn't know that, you know, if I do get injured and someone runs into me at the flying field that I've got cover, that if we do burn down the, the, the field, and I know a lot of clubs are worried about that in the height of summer, that there is some protection that we've got from a financial perspective to cover any losses or anything like that. That, that, that to me, you know, the value that we get from our membership, and I'm not just saying because you're on the line, Tyson, that paying the, what's the MAAA fee now? There's there's a state component, but the MAAA components, oh, I can't remember. Yeah, $90 this year. It was $60 for the last. That's right. There was a $30. Yeah, that's right. There was a $30 increase, but that was needed. But really for a $90 fee to have that much coverage to cover us, that is unheard of. You know, I used to be involved in car racing and I didn't have that level of coverage, I don't believe. And I was paying a lot more in insurance fees to have to have that kind of coverage. Okay, it is a riskier sport probably than aero modelling, but um, that's just a very good explanation. And I hope that people listen to that carefully and, and understand that, um, as I said, I'm not trying to pump Tyson's tyres up here, that I genuinely didn't understand and didn't realise that there was that much work. And I really think that... Um, I can see why you're a busy man because you've got to manage so many different insurance policies. And of course, every year they have to be renewed and, and, and revised and that kind of thing. And 
Uh, and no doubt, you know, I think the way the world's going, insurance fees, I don't think are going to be dropping anytime soon. And so, yeah. you know, well, there's that, actually just... another, there's, an, there's another one that I didn't mention either. Um, oh, it's and better. it was, it, it, yeah, this, this will probably blow your socks off. And, and some of the, some of the, the guys might be surprised as well, but um, I think it was about four years ago, the um, council and executive identified that there was probably the, the possibility of including additional insurance policy in it. And it's almost like a bit of a freebie to um to the clubs so that policy was set up to provide the first ten thousand dollars of cover for club infrastructure um uh at all 300 and i think we're at 348 clubs at the moment so annually the the first ten thousand dollars of of infrastructure and and equipment coverage at our clubs is, is covered under this extra policy that we took out now, I'll give you an example. So, um, you know, my club at Tingalpa in, in Brisbane, you know, we've invested a lot of funds in the in the field over the time. We've got two right-on mowers, et cetera. But if we had a, a break in there, um, God forbid, but if we if they did manage to get in and, and take one of those mowers, well, that the first $10,000 is actually covered under an extra policy that the MAAA took out um, to, to cover that mower. Now, the, there is obviously an increased excess with that because, you know, if, if there wasn't an excess, then, you know, we might have 300-odd miles go missing every single every single year. But to to the, the value to the club of knowing that that first $10,000 of infrastructure is covered under an insurance policy is is a massive gain for, for clubs. And it doesn't matter if you've got 200 members or you've got 10 members, that club um, still has an additional policy that the MAAA established for them. Um, now, from that, we've had about uh, 50 clubs take out what we call a top-up insurance. So because the insurers that we're working with, the brokers, um, you know, we, we've got six, six policies that we're putting through them. They're obviously, you know, we, we're a good customer. Because of that, the clubs are actually able to write off that relationship and the, the discount that would already be in place to do a top-up. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we did up a top-up insurance for um, a club in South Australia that they determined that, you know, with all their mowers, their, um, you know, their irrigation equipment, their um, landscaping gear, et cetera, fridges and, you know, drinks machine, et cetera, that they were probably up around the $22,000, $23,000 Instead of going to a commercial insurer to get another policy to, to cover that they were able to get a top up so from the ten thousand dollars up to the twenty three thousand dollars they were able to take out a small little um, additional premium coverage to cover for the whole amount um, with the same insurer and the the it was the discounted rate was insane it was so good i was actually blown away um, so that's another little addition that we we work on behind the scenes to provide for for the three hundred and forty odd clubs that we have, oh, I, I I just didn't know all this. <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna have a chat with you later off camera about <laughs> off off mic about communication. But I tell you what, the um that's just amazing. Like it, you often hear, oh, what do the MAAA do? Now, for anyone that's thinking like that, just listen again to what Tyson just told you about the insurance policies that we've got, and you go and see if you can go and find insurance policies for ninety bucks a year that will cover you for all that, including your club and your, some, you know, some of the theft that might happen. And it does happen. I've, I've known a lot of clubs that have been broken into and had things stolen. Um, even my own local club has had to put 
security systems in because of uh, because of um, break-ins. So the MAAA basically is a, is, is a body. It's our body as members that allows these kind of things to happen. And there's people like Tyson who are making are doing the grunt work. Somebody has to manage it. And yes, Tyson gets paid, but someone has to do it. And the workload is significant enough to warrant having a full-time employee. So I'm more than happy for you to get paid and more, more than happy to contribute my money. The $30 increase I thought was justified and it's just part of the world. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So if anybody's wondering what the NAAA does, and you've got friends that want to know, tell them to listen to this podcast and just listen to what Tyson said because I think you explained it extremely well. Now, on another point about the MAAA, still dispelling some some myths. The MAAA, uh, is it a cash cow? Are you just rolling in <laughs> funds that you can, and, and you're all just sitting on those funds? Like, you know, I don't want you to tell me how much money the MAAA's got. And it comes out in reports, I think, anyway. But is it a cash cow? Like, can you be free with money? <laughs> No, no, and this, you know, I, I get a call a lot of the time, quite quite regularly, saying, you know, oh, I need help with this, and I need help with that, and I need support for this. Um, again, we we talked about the MOPs earlier, so the MOPs is really that spine of of our association and how we operate, um, and and I use competition support. Um, that seems to be one that I get hit with quite a lot. Um, you know, a lot of members say, oh, hang on, you know, you you. you you're taking our money to support competition flyers. Well, um, yes, we do help our competition flyers that attend world championship events. And, and let's not beat around the bush. Attending a world championship event um, is expensive. I mean, it is, you know, we're not just talking a couple of thousand dollars, but to, to go overseas and, and compete in an event in Europe, you know, you, you won't get change out of $10,000 and you lose three, two or three weeks annual leave. Um, so we, we are able to help out our competitions, uh, comp- competitors with a, a small, a small um, assistance for for their fees, and and I think it only really covers the FAI fee for them to enter. How much um, would that roughly give me a ballpark so that we can manage people's expectations here? Okay, so the the entry fee subsidy is seven hundred and fifty Australian dollars, and a uniform fee. So they wear a uniform, Australian uniform with their AAA logo and. And represent the band, our brand, um, and they get a subsidy of two hundred and fifty dollars to that. So we're talking a thousand dollars now. You know, some of these events are. I think the entry fee for uh, the latest world championship team I, I saw was about five hundred euros. So once you do the conversion, um, it, yeah, the 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 competitor to represent MAAA in Australia has still still got a deep pocket to reach into at home. And how many, how many, roughly, how many competitors are a year would be claiming that kind of money? So uh, that slightly changes from year to year because there's a, a half the disciplines in one year, half the disciplines in the following year. Um, but it ranges between 45 and 50 competitors and team managers um, per year. Um, so when you work that out from what I just said to you, it's not not a lot of money. Um, you know, the majority of our money is invested in insurance. It's invested in um, home home uh, events for support. So, you know, we support clubs that are, you know, holding a, I don't know, it might be an IMAC event or they're holding a scale weekend or um, they're having a fly-in or, or even come have a go days. You know, we get a lot of clubs that, that put put their hand up just to a little bit of help to, to hold and do some advertising for come have a go days or um, try days. Um, so... 
that that's that's a lot of the the background or the on the ground work that we do, and obviously the insurance, you know, those six insurance policies uh, to cover for for nine and a half thousand members is, you know, it's up there in in what we have to pay each year. Um, and then there's, you know, we we also self-insure for minor incidences. So you know, we got members. We might have six or seven members that might hit a a car bumper bar um, during the year, Andrew, and and because of the the insur- level of insurance that we've got, some of those just aren't worth making an insurance claim through the insurer and impacting the premium. So some of those smaller damages that our members do, we we actually take care of that in house, um, just so that we don't impact on the the insurance premium and the excess that we that we cover um, internally for for those incidents. Yeah. Okay. Now. Um... We're almost at the end with these NAAA questions, but you're delivering <laughs> right. gold and it's it's good. The um, a lot of people look to the NAAA for for leadership and guidance and think that the NAAA should be responsible for everything to do with the hobby. Can the NAAA single handedly change the hobby? No, no. We 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 operate on, or I believe NAAA operates on a critical mass approach. So. We all have to work together. We have to be unified on a unified front um, for the the pursuit of the flexibility that our members have. And I I use our members because um, MAAA, so the state associations, remembering how how we're made up and how we're guided by our particular associations at state level, we can only provide um, guidance and direction and and future-proofing for our members. Um, now, that's that's not to be nasty or or, or exclude other era modelers, but um, under our deed of agreement that we have with uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, so what we have with CASA, really what we're providing to CASA is guarantee that we are engaging with our members in relation to operations of model aircraft and safety um, to best guide them. So. Obviously, if someone's not a member and they turn around, they say, well, the MAAA didn't tell me how, to, how I had to do something. Well, we actually don't have the ability as the, the MAAA structure, so the, the federal body, the state body and the clubs, to get a, a non-member to operate in a way that they need to. Um, and that comes back to the critical mass. So by having you know, the 9,500 members, we're able to say, look, this is the direction that we're going. Uh, to ensure that we don't have a tightening of our, our our flexibility of flying, but this is our expectation we have out of our members to help us get there. Um, you know the the age old saying: you spend ninety nine percent of your time trying to make one percent happy, or or you're always going to have one percent that are always going to cause ninety nine percent of the hassles. Um, and and we especially at a time like this, and in the last couple of years with with the height restrictions that have come in. You know, I'm, I'm pretty impressed and pretty proud of the MAAA membership or the critical mass of its members um, in doing the right thing and striving to do what we do just that little bit better. Um, from from that comes improved safety and, and, and consequently comes in improved flexibility for how we operate and where we can operate. Yeah, that's good. Now, I've, I've just thought of another question I've got to ask you. Um, Get it. A lot, a lot of people, a lot of people say, "Oh, the NAAA and you know the state association is like a boys' club, you know, as if everybody's best of mates and you've all done dodgy deals to get each other into power." Be <laughs> honest, 
Is that the situation? Do, do, do all the Does the MAAA committee all love each other and can't wait to catch up and have a chat about some of the MAAA issues and they're all, it's a conspiracy against modelling modelers or something? No, definitely not. It's definitely not a boys' club. Um, I, I have to admit, I came onto council, so I was, I was a, the, the Queensland president for quite a few years um, from 2015. Um, before that, I was involved in my local club since I was about 11 on, on the, my Tingalpa committee. Um, but when I came onto council, you know, there was obviously a lot of people that used to say, oh, you go away for a weekend to these exotic locations and, you know, you, you have your noses in the trough. Well, I tell you what, I don't, I don't think any of the locations we've been in has really been exotic. Um, there certainly hasn't been any council conferences or meetings held in Fiji or Hamilton Island, or it'd probably be cheaper if it was. But you know, we we get locked in a in a room for two days straight. I mean, I, I remember I think the Tasmanian meeting we had in Launceston. We arrived in or, or started the meeting on the Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Uh, and Andrew, we it, it was a 14-hour day. We didn't we we were late to dinner. We we didn't leave that room until 7:30 that night. Um, and then after after a short dinner, we then still had to to work on finalising some budgets. And and no, not not all the council members are best buddies. Not all of them are, are good friends. Some of them certainly can wait to catch up with some of the others. But at the end of the day, they have the the same goal at heart and and that is for you know leaving some sort of legacy for for the members that follow them um in in these roles um so it's no it's it's definitely not a boys club and there's some pretty pretty strong negotiating skills and and wake up calls that happen periodically between all the council members excellent well just to clarify something the questions that i asked you did you tell me to ask those questions? Did you have any input into the questions that I just asked you? Because just in case the naysayers out there think that I've staged some sort of uh, thing with you and we're in cahoots, uh, have you actually seen any of these questions prior to me asking them to you? <laughs> no, you only called me an hour ago on Facebook and, <laughs> and said, hey, you want to do a, a radio a radio interview? Yep, um, exactly There's a couple right. of curly ones in there. Quite frankly, I hadn't really really thought of them from from the other perspective. But um, in hindsight, no, um, certainly certainly hadn't seen seen them only. I think you've done a good job. So yeah, uh, just uh, be a hundred percent transparent here. The questions that I asked uh, Tyson are questions that came out of my head. Um, I did document some questions myself. They weren't sent to Tyson, so this is not a pre-planned loving for the MAAA because uh, it's just not, doesn't work that way. I have some experience working on committees and I understand the work that's involved. And for anyone that keeps on ringing up Tyson and hounding him and abusing him, back off because you're not going to get anything done. Is that correct? If you someone's going to give you a bit of curry, it's just not appreciated. It, so, well, Yeah, it's not appreciated. I mean, I understand everybody sort of deals with change and, and at the moment it's challenging times for everybody. So I don't really, uh, I certainly don't hold, hold many grudges at all, but um you know, I think we just all need to realise that we've all got the same goal. Um, I want to make sure that error modelling is in is in the the same, if not better, state for my kids. Um, both my my son nine and and daughter seven have started flying, so that's that's my my goal. I, I want to make sure I leave a legacy of of future proofing error modelling, you know, for my kids and and all my mates. So I've got got the best interest of every error modeler at heart and. We'll just keep striving to do the best that we can. Um, I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes, but um, 
I'll, I'll throw my hand up when I do, but I'll venomously defend a decision when uh, when I've got the, the association and the members' interests at heart. Yeah, no, nah, well done. Now, let's move on from that. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about a little side business that you've got going on. And I dare say this is extended from some of your trips that you've, over to the US. <laughs> uh, Land Down Under Aerosports. Can you tell me a bit about Land Down Under to Aerosports? Yeah, I, um, I, I, oh, it's not really a business. It's more so probably it, it draw takes more money out of the family person. Wait a second, Tyson. Wait a second, Tyson. Are you telling me <laughs> that a hobby business is not a lucrative business to be in oh, at the moment? I, I understand all those those wise men who have had hobby shops, I tell you. I understand the decisions that they've made. But no, it's it, I, I do LDU Aerosports, Land Down Under Aerosports is a passion. It's just an extension of... Um, you know, being able to have a, an Aussie Aussie brand, so to speak. I've got a heap of guys that I fly with that, that wear LDUA Aero, um, Aerosport shirts, and and it's and it's you know, it's a good bit of fun to have a have a group that sort of flies under a bit of a banner and and a, pl- a bit of a play on words. But you know, when we go over to the US, it's like, oh, hey guys, it's it's um yeah, just to to get get it out. In front of everyone and um you know i i became really good mates with with uh, an aussie so an expat uh, peter goldsmith who um who moved over to the us oh, about 25 years ago now and uh took up a job with horizon hobbies as their marketing marketing director and uh, managing all the the horizon hobby team and became pretty good friends and he um he taught me a lot, actually. I, I competed at Top Gun, did Florida Jets, and obviously uh, all the best in the West uh, events, and and spent some time with him learning laser cutting, of all things. Um, I certainly didn't see myself going down that that track and and getting addicted to gliding again. You know, I hadn't done any gliding since about 1994, about uh, when I was a kid, and uh, he introduced me back to the bit of bit of gliding and and. More importantly, some laser cutting and, and, and building, getting covered in balsa dust and gluing my fingers together with zap. And um, yeah, so I've, I've got that, that bit of an itch now that I'm trying to scratch with, with LDUA and, and some uh, sort of building kits again. For anybody that doesn't know, you can get on uh, to, the, to your website. What's the website address? Uh, LDUA Aerosports. LDUA. Sorry. Yeah, just type in Aerosports. Yeah. Yep. LDU Aerosports, um, and you'll find the page. Now, just to clarify, uh, Tyson's selling uh, some turbines, uh, turbine uh, models, uh, the Peter Goldsmith range of gliders and some accessories for, for all those kind of things. So uh, definitely, if you want to build a, a great uh, kit by the, the designed by the master Peter Goldsmith, who is really probably one of Australia's greatest hobby exports in a, in a kind of way, uh, <laughs> that uh, Tyson has got those. So get on board and take a look. Tyson... Final question. One I ask everybody. Yep. Over all your years of model flying, what has been your favourite model? I knew you were going to ask that. I knew you were going to ask that. Look, I, I said um... I ask every guest the same question, Tyson. Okay. Of course I was going to ask. Giddy up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd have to say the F-104. Yeah, the Starfighter. Um, it's an aircraft that shouldn't fly when you look at it, but it flies amazing. Um, so a few guys know that I'm, I'm a little bit addicted to the F-104. So is my old man. Um, we've got a couple in our stable. Um, I actually uh, bought back a couple of Peter's F-104s that he competed at Top Gun with. And 
and uh, have been flying them here in Australia. And that's actually the model I took back, all the way back mm -hmm. to Illinois and then a road trip down to Florida with Peter to compete in the team event um, at Top Gun uh, in 2018. So it's, you know, it's an airframe that, that you look at a, a lawn dart with, with two fins attached as wing, wings and it shouldn't fly as well as it does, but it, it does. It's, it's certainly a thrill and, and, an, and a, uh, a pleasure to fly. Yeah, no, I agree. They, they, I don't know how they fly. They look like a rocket ship that you know <laughs> gets launched to the air and then falls back down. How, how they uh, how do they go coming into land? Those F one hundred fours. Oh, they're not too bad actually. The the larger one, the Airworld Airworld airframes, um, is pretty good. You just uh, you know same as everything. Don't get them too slow. I think with the one hundred four though, the the too slow parameter is is quite higher than most other jets. Um, but it yeah, it's it's sort of I liken it to you know, driving driving a tank through a through a muddy marsh, you've got to keep a bit of speed up, I suppose. Yeah. Well, Tyson, I've really enjoyed our chat. I've learned a lot today, genuinely learned a lot, and um, really appreciate your time and effort coming on and, and also being so honest about, especially the MAAA stuff. Uh, really, really appreciate it. So uh, thanks a lot, Tyson. Yeah, no, fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's been good. About to leave. Already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, another bumper edition of the Flat Out RC podcast is done and dusted. A big thank you to special guest Tyson Dodd. Really appreciate you getting online and having a chat with me and just being so informative. Uh, around what's happening with the MAAA and, and, and everything else that you're up to. Really, really appreciate your time, and I hope you did get a lot of benefit out of it. Now, as always, uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Now, if you're listening to this, you probably know how you can subscribe, but get on board and subscribe so you stay informed. As I said, we've got some great interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks, and one of them especially is a really big name. Actually, both are reasonably big names in their own right, so a couple more coming up up the sleeve and they'll be coming out weekly the aim is every wednesday evening or wednesday during the day maybe uh we will we'll get them out but basically on a wednesday they will come out ready for you to listen to on a weekend whilst you're building model aircraft uh thanks to those people who've been sending me messages saying they're enjoying the podcast always room for improvement trying my best but we're getting there and i'm enjoying it so i'm going to continue to keep on doing it so don't forget subscribe to instagram to our facebook and to YouTube channel as well. And merch available at flatoutrc.com.au. If you've got any questions, a good way to get in touch is jump onto flatoutrc.com.au and uh, get onto the Contact Us page and send me a message. If, you want, if you've got any suggestions, I'd love to hear any feedback. And also, just a little quick note, Flat Out RC editions of the old print magazine are still available in some of the old editions. Jump online at flatoutrc.com.au and we'll, we can post one out. You can buy one online and we can post it out. So thank you once again for joining me, Andrew Sill, here on the Flat Out RC podcast, episode five, done and dusted. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>